Texas Hold'em poker. Of course it's a skill. You know, it's, it's just, of course it's a skill. Risk and money. I love sitting down at the poker table and working out who I'm playing with and, and strategy and trying to work out where I am in the game and, and, try, and try and beat the game. Skill and chance. Leaders, when you're ready, could you please shuffle up and deal? Winning and losing. Now the game starts. The cards are dealt. What happens now? The turn of a card. Such cruel things can happen. I mean, uh, I've seen horror stories. You know, like, like the turn of a card can change your life. Anyone can get lucky at any given night. But once all the money's in, it's up to the poker gods. You know, the dream is sort of being the last guy with the chips, you know. That's the dream. Easter 2010. Over 700 poker players arrive at Europe's oldest poker tournament, the Irish Poker Open. The buy-in is €3,500. The champion will win €600,000. This is the dream for these three men, Porig, Andy and Joe. Andy Black, who's one of the most basically successful Irish poker players there are, uh, that Ireland's had. Um, Andy and I started back in the jackpot at the same time. Back in 2005, he was sitting right beside me when I got um, knocked out of the main event, where I was in a huge pot, two cards going to beat me, one of them came up, I was gone. He's sitting beside me with only a few chips. He ends up coming fifth and gets 1.7 million, and his whole life changes. Um, he gets a sponsorship deal, and he kicks on. He plays the, starts playing the big events, starts winning more big events, and you know, his confidence is up, and... It was a couple of weekends, that weekend in the, in the deep stack, he was saying to me, he said, every time he's running bad or feeling a bit down, he thinks of me. So he said, look, we both played the same amount of time. And then it was just a turn of a card at that time. And his life went one way and mine went another way. And that's, that, that's all it took. Hi, I'm Andrew Black. Um, I'm 44. And yeah, I've been playing poker maybe 25 years. And I'm now at the top of the tree here in this small country. Some people might disagree with that. <laughs> With wins of about four and a half million at the poker table and sponsorship from Full Tilt Poker, Andy Black is one of the most successful poker players in the country and is living what many would regard as the poker dream. My name is Porrick Parkinson. Uh, I'm not going to tell you my age, but I, I have recently qualified to play for the, in the, on the seniors tour if I want to. I don't want to, but I could if I wanted to. Porrick Parkinson is a veteran of the card table. He's cashed eight times at the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas and his winnings of over one and a half million. I left the day job um, over 20 years ago and uh, became a professional poker player. It didn't work out for a few years. I mean, I had, a, I had some lifestyle issues, some money management issues, and um, I was always very keen to press everything to the limit. I mean, you know, I was a lot younger then. But, you know, um, I was always trying to explore, I mean, another way of messing the whole thing up. And I've <laughs> found several of them, but um, I've been doing it seriously now for about 50, well, successfully for 15 or 16 years. As I always said over the years, every time I wasn't working, I was a professional poker player. <laughs> this is Joe O'Neill. He runs a late night poker club in Dublin. He's been playing poker for as long as he can remember, but he's also seen the darker side of gambling. My father was a really bad gambler, extremely bad gambler. It actually, well, I, I, I actually caught the drug when I was about 11. I used to play 25 with my father and my grandfather and uh, great uncle. And, um, and they used to take it very seriously. But when we were playing like for pennies or whatever. But I mean, a penny was a lot, a lot of money. But um, then they started introducing this penny poker at, at the end of it. And I was like, I was only 11. This kind of went on like for, you know, for two weeks every year. 
but I was able, I was able to, uh, to beat them at the poker like from the start and I thought, well, this is, this is pretty handy. My father, he was poker, he played poker a lot um, and he used to uh, promote Joe Dolan. He brought Joe to Vegas in 1980 and um, my dad's dead 20 years. He, like on his deathbed, this is the Beaumont Hospital, to me at times, just pack up and move to Vegas. <laughs> Vegas, is, he loved it. So I used to go to um, Joe Dolan gigs with my dad uh, around Ireland and we'd go to the gig we did, we'd go like I said, what, at five o'clock and after the sound check Joe would do it'd be poker in the dressing room for you know, the next four hours before the gig so I remember I was playing with Joe and his brother Ben and James Cafferty who was his manager and we were in the dressing room we were playing poker and Ben said to me where did you learn to play poker? And Joe just says, isn't he watching us since he was that size? And literally I was four and five years old in the dressing room before Joe Dolan gig, watching them play poker. <laughs> and that was it. My father um, would always come in and he'd get me to guess the golf, his golf scores. And so I would be judging, you know, how he looked. And from a very, very young age, if I think of all of the things which make sense to me, that's probably the one that makes the most sense. That it's the idea of kind of guessing what score someone has. And in some sense... That's all poker is. Like my father always had a big car. He always was dressed in the best of suits. He got his hair done every morning. He used to get his hair blow dry and done the hair dry every morning to get done. He was immaculate, immaculate, and always looked like he had a million dollars. <laughs> but most times he didn't. <laughs> He'd have a fiver and that'd be it. But uh, he set up um, the golden pages, before, the yellow pages before golden pages. And like he, millions he'd lost. Then, like, he'd an ad off everybody, and he'd have literally suitcases of checks going around the country, and the whole lot would be gone the fun, the Monday would be all gone. And then one Christmas he came home, and on the Saturday, um, he had a 20 euro, 20 pound bet on in the bookies, and he won 15 grand. And this is my dad, and one day he was in Vegas. We got central heating that week in the house, and the rest was, in, the rest was gone to Vegas. And that was, that's what, he just, that was it, he was gone. There used to be a coffee shop in Cattle Brewery called The Lion's Den. We used to, that used to bring us there for breakfast on Saturday mornings. We were only maybe 10, 11. And one morning we went in and uh, he said, order what you want. And I said, he said, uh, it's all in the house tonight. I said, what? He'd won the coffee shop the night before off the guy. And your man, you could see your man like pale behind the counter. And he'd won it in the Gresham. He used to have a game, the Gresham and the Shelbourne. That's where he used to have the two poker games. And he'd won the Lions Den the night before. And your man was like pale. But I'd say... There's no way my dad would have took the light down, but I'd say he, he did milk him for a long time for a 500 grand and a grand grand for the horses. Like, it was crazy. Um, there was a fight on the TV. Suddenly listening on Muhammad Ali. And uh, after the fight, my, my dad said to mum, pack up your stuff. He'd lost the house to the bookie. And they came around the following day at 12 o'clock and they'd move out. She was only 19 years old. Um, oh, he, was, like, he was just a sicko. Like, I didn't realise it until later on. I said I'd meet other people and... Um, only my mother was so strong, she held it, she held it, held it all together. It was a nightmare, absolute nightmare it must have been for her, you know? Not knowing that there was going to be food or it was gone. And that was what, that, what it was like. There was lots of money or no money. I don't know, it's, it's not the life I'd like to lead. <laughs> Whatsoever, you know? This is why the World Series of Poker is decided over a no-limit poker tournament. Players, pros even, can't handle the pressure of the game. They consider no limit the only pure game left. The taste for poker came at a young age for these three. They've seen that this life brings highs and lows. 
but Andy's own son is still undecided. I mean, what's it like having a poker player father? Is that? It's nice having a good poker player as a father. <laughs> and good fathers can be good poker players. <laughs> Do you think he's a good poker player? Sometimes. I'm a single father, you know, so I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I get up at, uh, you know, half past seven to get my son to school, like five days a week, yeah. And he's 11, you know. So, uh, you know, I've gradually had him more as he's got older, you know. His, his mother did a great job on him when, it, when he was younger, and uh, now I'm taking him on more, you know, now he's older, so. <laughs> Let's just all stop Okay, I'm going to do a little intro to this. Right, the little intro is this. Yep. Here we are with my 11-year-old son. And um, he's a great boy. Now, the question is, the question we're exploring here today is, is whether there's any connection between the genetic imbalances which have caused Andrew Black to be a professional poker player and whether these have transmuted, transmogrified, or passed on in any way to his son has become obsessed by the advanced strategy game Warhammer at the age of 11. Anyway, today we'll be having two mega knobs, <laughs> both with the vasting mega armor. I played power. my first tournament on the 22nd of November 1988, and I was 18 years old that night. It was a Tuesday night, and it was in the jackpot. It was, only, it was the only club in, in, in the city at the time. What's happened since then is just unreal. Like it was the same thirty people in the same club every night of the week, playing the same game, and um, the cr I was by far the youngest. Everyone else was were, were literally in their forties and fifties and sixties. We were eighteen, and it was like we thought poker was just going to die because they're all going to die, and that was it because there was no young people playing it. Uh, I started playing poker in Trinity College. I wasted four years in Trinity playing poker. I was allegedly studying uh, economics. For some reason or other, they gave me a degree in it uh, when I was leaving. I think it was just to try to bust up the game. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was what it was. I mean, look, I was the man in the game in Trinity pretty soon after I joined it, and I was the man when I left. It just seemed I had a natural affinity for the thing. In the middle of college, I took it up. I studied law, but I took it up in the middle of college because I wasn't really interested in college. And I arrived one day into this tournament that was free in a poker club, and I just thought it was magical. And I often look back, even though I want a lot of money, you know, and I remember those times as the ones that were the best, you know. I had no money, but there was this magic. There was lots of little old ladies. So, but I don't know, there, there was a whole smaller scene then. It was like, I mean, to give you an example, if, if a person that no one knew walked into the, uh, the club, everybody would look around. But then I discovered the Eccentrics Club. The Eccentrics Club was absolutely unbelievable. I mean, it was up in um, Hanlon's Corner, right beside the pub there, and it was, you had to go up little stairs. It was, it was kind of a couple of flats knocked into a, a little casino by Terry Rogers. It was like you went up to an old bedsit. There was, when you walk in the door, and there's a blackjack table on the left, and then there's like three poker tables. But th it, I mean, it looked like a flat that was turned into a casino. Jesus, it was in Hanlon's Corner, you know. But, um, it, you know, like it wasn't Las Vegas. But, I mean, to me it was in those days. And it was, it, was, uh, it was the most fun I've ever had playing poker. And Terry would be presiding up there I mean, like a circus master. It was wonderful times then because, uh, you know, in those days, I mean, now it's sexy to be a professional poker player. But in those days it was quite the opposite. I mean, you were considered sort of... Um, Maybe just a little bit lower than pond life if you said you were a professional poker player. In those days, I was just happy to 
to have some chips. Yeah, I mean, that was the main sort of goal of the exercise. You know, you'd be there with chips of some sort and you'd be in action. The ponies run, the girls are young, the odds are there to be. and Andy have won millions at the poker table. But choosing to be a professional poker player can lead to a nocturnal life on the fringe of society and it can take years of struggle to even get there. I kind of started off as a, as a sick gambler and became a, became a professional poker player. You know, from an early age, I mean, I just loved to gamble. And I was dreadful at it. I mean, I was the worst horse punter of all time and still am. It's impossible to be a poker player and a gambler because uh, it's just not going to work out. When you've made the same mistake, you know, around about time 93, the penny drops, you know, that maybe um, maybe this isn't a very good. If I want to be a poker player, I'm going to have to leave all that out. So I don't do any of that anymore. How many years would you say that you were a sick gambler? Um, oh, it's maybe 10. In the bookies and the pubs. Well, I had, I had some lifestyle issues as well. I was probably a bit more, um, maybe a bit more Shane McGowan than Daniel O'Donnell. <laughs> I was doing everything I shouldn't be doing. I was playing roulette. I was playing blackjack. I was in the bookies all day. Horses, dogs, the whole lot. Then go and play poker for two days. It was a, it was a pretty bizarre lifestyle. But I finally cut myself on. And got advice from a few friends. Just said, well, you've got a bit of a talent. I mean, uh, you can either just respect it and give it a chance or you can, um, you can self-destruct. I wasn't somebody who liked it when I lost everything, but, um, but, but I liked the buzz of putting it all on the line. But there is a very dangerous um, buzz involved in that kind of thing, you know. That I mean, like I've seen people who would normally be... Um, I've seen people lose all their dignity at the poker table. I've seen people destroy their lives at the poker table. I've seen, um, I've seen marriages break up, kids go hungry, electricity bills not get paid, and all because somebody had to deal with this horrible thing that was eaten up inside them. I lost a quarter of a million one year in a six-week stretch, so that's probably that's probably the most I've lost. I feel terrible. <laughs> I feel terrible. How do you think you feel when you lose a quarter of a million in six weeks? You feel like shit. <laughs> I don't know. You know, you're bringing me back to that time, you know, and I, I remember, you know, actually now you think of it, yeah, no, I did actually feel feel like shit, yeah, I felt terrible. But maybe, maybe, I mean, I often think of poker, it's a bit like being a boxer, you know, you're punched so many times that you just kind of, maybe you get a bit punch drunk or maybe, maybe you get used to it or sometimes when you really get hit, you just kind of, you're so used to getting up that you just kind of get up again. A thousand but despite their losses, Porig and Andy have made poker their living. Joe runs a late night poker club in Dublin. He realises that successful poker players see chips on the table as different to money in the real world. Money can't matter to you, whether you have it or not. You know, obviously it's better to have it, but if, if you're worried about calling the bet, when you really feel you're ahead, because, jeez, that's, that's the rent or the mortgage. Or the, you know, you, you, you shouldn't be playing. I love playing the game. I mean, the, the money's just a tool. I mean, I don't know, who, who was it that came up with the thing that, you know, the money is just a way of keeping the score? And, uh, you know, you have to have a, 
a little bit of respect and a little bit of disrespect for the money, maybe to get the balance right. If you think about the money too much, you've got no chance in a tournament. I mean, it's funny, you know. I mean, when I was with my brother and a kid, I'd sort of say, well, what would you do with it if you had a million pounds? I was always interested in the idea of that, but I've never been interested in money, you know. I mean, I don't drive. I'm not particularly... I don't have expensive tastes. I mean, it's nice living somewhere nice, and it's nice, you know, having money for good education or something. But personally, I actually don't have expensive, uh, particularly expensive tastes. If, for me, it was always more the dream, you know. Every year, Porig, Andy and Joe travel to Las Vegas for the gruelling six-week World Series of Poker Tournament. Over 6,500 players now enter the main event. Both Andy and Porig are two of the few poker players in the world to have made it to the final table. Joe is still waiting for his chance, but all three still dream of winning the bracelet. That time I came in third in the, in, in the World Series of Poker, um, I mean, this was just like a complete dream. Like, I was over in Las Vegas, um, but I, I remember coming out for the final table. There was only six at the final table that year, but coming out and just hearing the guy saying, you know, from Dublin, Ireland... I mean, just the hairs on the back of my neck, just, uh, I could feel them rising, I promise you. I mean, it was just the whole excitement of the whole thing. Like, and I didn't give a shit about the money, because, I mean, it, it, I should have, I suppose, but uh, it wasn't about the money. It was about, I mean, every poker player dreams of winning the world championship. And when you're lucky enough to um, to come out to play that final table, it's it's incredible. I mean, you know, people react in different ways to it. I mean, um I mean, everybody's nervous, but I, like if I'm nervous, I just start talking and chatting away. I mean, you think I hadn't a, a care in the world on me, but I, I mean, that's a complete act. I was, I was there with my um, my friend Scott Gray, and Scott is jumping up and down, and he's saying, God, you're going to win this thing, you're going to win it. I thought, well, it's not going to be that easy. And I, I managed to find a way to lose it, but um, it's, it's, it, it's impossible to, uh, to explain, I mean, just how much of a buzz it is, like... And especially, I mean, if that's been your passion for your life and that's what you want. I mean, uh, I mean, all I wanted to do was get my hands on the bracelet. I mean, I could have told them they could have keep the money. Just, just give me the title. I mean, it's mad. You're focused so much. It, like, if if you're noticing the time passing, it means you're not you're not doing your job because you really, if you're if you're in the zone, you're focused, you're watching everything. The time flies and you don't feel it. And then, a good example after it was day one in the World Series a couple of years ago. We'd done 12 hours or 14 hours, and I knew I was getting through to day two. There was only like a half an hour left, but we, we had a three-day break. So I'm there going, oh, I'm going on the beer after this. I can't get me out of here. I can't wait. Well, as we finished, I nearly, the legs went from under me. I was, I couldn't, I was asleep a half an hour later. It just, you don't even notice how tired you are and how exhausted you are um, until, until it's over because you're, you're focused so much. The game. In 97, I made it to play in the first, my first World Championships. And um, I was up against the late, great Stewie Unger, who would be regarded as the best no-limit hold'em player ever. And he, uh, I got down in my first attempt to the last 14 players. And I, I sat beside him, and he kind of made friends with me, and I kind of made a few mistakes, and, and I got knocked out. I was just gutted, you know. It was my, my, and he died a year later of an overdose, yeah. So it was my last chance to play against the greatest ever uh, No Limit Hold'em tournament player. You know, so I was kind of gutted, but I was also burnt out, you know. I mean, I 
my lifestyle wasn't great. Um, you know, I was doing a lot of soft drugs and drinking and smoking and and I was in bits basically. And I was also I'd no I, I think I had other things which I needed to look at, you know, and I think which for me was some kind of spiritual dimension. So a combination of all those factors and and probably not not having won the world championship and, you know, still struggle along broke a certain amount of the time and and I just stumbled into a meditation class or you know, to improve my poker, but I ended up going off um, and living in, after about a year of doing that, I quit poker, and I lived in Buddhist communities, semi-monastic communities for about five years, but it's still, it's painful, it's very painful to constantly sort of um, struggle to make money and make all these decisions, it's not easy, you know. The title Closer to Home that's on Joe Porig and Andy's minds is the Irish Poker Open, and it's just around the corner. All three have different ways of preparing. For Andy, he draws on the connection he's made with Buddhism. I've been silent for seven weeks at a time. No, seven, I did seven weeks on my own in a yurt in a forest in uh, just outside Birmingham, actually, in the middle of winter. Yeah, it was cold, you know. I mean, and I had no heating, you know, and just like, big things of water and a few buckets of food, you know. Initially, I was worried about the, the girlfriend or the ex-girlfriend. I can't even remember at the time. It was like four or five years ago I did this. And I gradually built up to it. And you're worried about your job and, and, and all these kind of things. You know, as a week passes, you just... Those things don't seem so important. What I found there was that as time passed, it was just the mere, um, you know, you'd look out at a tree and, and that was kind of nice. And I was... Very simple stuff, you know. Whenever you're you're left on your own for a long period, if you've got a bit of, I mean, I was meditating and stuff like that, you find that the very things which you, many of the things which you thought were so important actually weren't, you know, including things like poker. They're not. A good poker player. Well, you know, everybody goes on about the mats. I mean, I've, I've met more mathematicians and accountants I mean, that tried to play poker and I had absolutely no idea why they couldn't win. But the, the maths is absolutely nothing to do with it. I mean, you could teach an idiot the maths in about 20 minutes. And poker's all about the people. I mean, it's, you know, you get dealt a hand. And I mean, the, the first mistake you can make is to think that, th that this is all about the hand that you have. Well, the hand that you have is only uh, a very small part of the equation. Like everybody else is getting dealt a hand as well. You know, your mind is constantly taking pictures of what's going on around you. A lot, about, a, lot, a lot about it is known how, how people think and, and what they're going to do. People often ask you what, what kind of makes a good poker player, but um, it's more what makes me a good poker player. I almost feel like saying to people who ask me that question, well, what are you scared of in your life? What do you regard as risk-taking? What makes me a good poker player is, you know, I was broke for 10 years probably, and I struggled and, and fought. And the, all it comes down to really is, I'm going to work out exactly what your hand is more than you're going to work out what my hand is. And then the next thing is I'm going to know what to do. Yeah, how much to bet, uh, when to bet, when not to bet. People can, especially, as I say, beginners can give away so much. Some final tables have been at, they might as well have all played their cards turned up. Really, like, you're going, I've said, if I don't win this, just shoot me. Like it's, And that's what it can be like. That shows there's a big skill in the game. The thing, the extra thing which I added, which is confuses things, is that there is a gambling element to it. But I mean, 
I'll frequently meet people who will say, well, I can't believe you put in that bluff. And the truth is I'm looking at them like they're like gamblers because they're playing so carefully that they're the one who is actually gambling. So there can be an assumption that people have that gambling is associated with um, being uncareful. But as we know ourselves, if you're too careful, you know, if you're too careful with your children, well, they end up being soft and not able to do things. And uh, so that's really risky. If I knew how tough it was going to be, um, I wouldn't have done it. You know, um, you know, it takes years to work out whether, uh, whether it's ever going to work out. And, it, and, you know, it's too dangerous. When I grow up, I'd like to... I don't know. Would you like to be a poker player? No. Don't like poker. That doesn't mean I don't like watching. I just don't like playing it. Funnily enough, I mean, it is interesting that he started getting into this game called Warhammer. I mean, Warhammer is one of a sort of series of games that, particularly for a lot of young players, are um, prequels to uh, poker. They're sort of advanced strategy games. So I didn't get him into it. He just wandered into it, yeah? So, and it's obvious sort of watching him think that there's something going on there which is, you know, not that many people have in relation to strategic thinking. But you wouldn't be worried about a son of yours saying they want to be a professional poker player? Well, I, I just don't see things like that. Maybe, maybe I don't know. I mean, I'm not so concerned with what people are doing, you know. I'm more concerned with um, how he does it, what character he would do with what he's doing. So whether he does that as a poker player or a janitor or a banker, I'm not too bothered at really, you know. Ginger's is rat. I mean, hamster. Rat. Hamster. So I call him a rat. I mean, he looks like a rat. He likes strawberries. Rats don't like strawberries. What you know? What? Do you is, like strawberries? Yeah, of course. But this is an interview about poker. What the hell has your rat got to do with it? I'm gonna raise a hamster. Okay, your hamster. What has your hamster got to do with? Are you just like bored and you feel like talking about your hamster? Maybe. <laughs> It's Good Friday, the first day of the Irish Poker Open. The tournament will go on for four days, with play continuing into the early hours. There's no sign of Joe O'Neill, but Pork Parkinson has just arrived. We're here at the Irish, uh, the, the, Irish, the Irish Open Poker. It's back in the Burlington again. The atmosphere here is absolutely extraordinary. They've got gospel singers in the, the lobby banging it out on a Good Friday. There's an incredible buzz around the place. It's probably one of the most coveted uh, titles in the world. I mean, this event is steeped in history. You know, a lot of the guys who are a huge part of the history of this event aren't with us anymore. But, I mean, today they're with us in spirit. You know, this whole tournament has come from, you know, a, you know, a dirty little flat in uh, Hanlon's Corner in the Eccentrics Club uh, to the Burlington Hotel. And, uh, you know, 700 players. You know, the first time I played the Irish Open, I, I don't know, it, there might have been like 50 or 60 runners. I mean, that was considered quite a big field at the time. But now they're here from all over the world. You know, as far as European poker goes, this is the one everybody wants to win. Hey, how you doing? And Andy Black has just arrived, feeling hopeful that his strategy will get him to the final table. I mean, I'm definitely one of the better players here, you know. So if I get a bit of movement early on, 
then I can cause mayhem, you know? Could you go out today? Like oh, yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I'm always trying to get chips, so, you know, I may well take risks early. I don't usually play tight at the beginning, so I often take a lot of early baths in tournaments. Because if I can get that bit of momentum early on, then I can kind of pummel, pummel the table, you know? Because you always feel a bit of butterflies coming out of the Irish Open. Ladies and gentlemen, first of all, a very warm welcome to the 2010 PaddyBarrowPoker.com Irish Open. It's going to be a great weekend. As you can see, we're back in the Burlington, so we hope you really enjoy yourselves. I just want to wish you all the very, very best luck. I want to say my favourite few words now to the dealers. So when you're ready, could you please shuffle up and deal? While some players hide behind sunglasses, earphones and hoods, players like Porig prefer to keep the chat going at the table. Holland for 15,025. Did you guys only just meet today? <laughs> <laughs> bet it's for 15,000. This looks like something. 3,000 is the bet. Raise Holland from Porig. It's only a few hours in, and things seem to be going well for Porig. Until... I got knocked out, but <laughs> you know, sometimes in this game, you just get locked into a pot and that's it. So, you know, we managed to, uh, to, to get all the money in on the flop, but um, so it went very well until the, until the, the river and uh, we both hit the flush. Unfortunately, Dunnick hit a bigger one. So, you know, that was the end of that. You know, th this, is, this is probably as upset as you're ever going to see me after getting knocked out of a poker tournament, because I'm, uh, no, this is a tournament that's very close to my heart. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't hurt a little bit, I mean, uh, it means you didn't care enough. So, um, but you know, that's the way um, tournament poker goes. You know, you know, if you can't stand the heat, you know, you know, like there's many ways of playing poker. But if you want to play tournament poker, you know, for a living, uh, you know, you have to accept that. You know, for every great day out, there's going to be a lot of disappointments. But things are going better for Andy. <laughs> and by dinner break, he's in good form and happy to still be in the tournament. Well, if we're five hours in, it feels like about three years. I have had a very struggling day. I've had no cards. I don't think I've played particularly well. Uh, the only thing I've done well is bluff. Well, which I, I've survived, so I've got kind of roughly what I started with. Um, the table is a table of doom, but I'm quite happy. You know, I started talking about an hour ago. I hadn't talked for the first four hours, and I started talking about an hour ago, and I haven't stopped. So you think we're here tomorrow? Uh, well, I'll be here tomorrow from a spiritual point of view. Whether I'll still be in the tournament, I don't know, yeah. But uh, I'm enjoying myself now. I'm ready to go. I've had some chocolate cake, so that has me completely buzzed up. It's day two, and already about 600 players have been eliminated. But Andy still has chips. Where are we at? Um... Well, that was probably my best session yet um, in terms of play. Well, you seem relaxed anyway. Yeah, maybe too relaxed. We'll see. I'm still alive. You're still following me. <laughs> so I want you to listen to me very carefully. We're going to play hand for hand. It's late on the second day, and Andy is getting close to the money. A share of the 2.2 million euro prize pot. Porig is watching from the sidelines. Very important point in the tournament. There's a lot of tension around because we're now down to uh, you know, what's known in poker as uh, the bubble. Okay, 
The bubble is the point where uh, people reach the prize money. Now there's 72 prizes and there's only 74 people left. 72nd gets 4,000 euros. That's, that's, that's why the whole place has gone quiet. I wouldn't say Andy is safe because Andy is, isn't playing to get through the bubble, he's playing to win. You know, and, and guys that are playing to win, they take advantage of everybody else slowing down in the bubble and try and steal as many chips. And, and Andy's that kind of player. You know, th- th- this is when the, when the butterflies get going. And, you know, and, f- and for the sick people, I mean, th- 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 this is where the real buzz comes. By the end of day two, Andy has made it through the bubble, but he's lost chips on the way. I made one move and got called. You know, just right on the bubble, trying to make a few chips. Um, but apart from that, it was kind of a pretty good day. But I'm short, I'm hanging in there, you know. And Going into day three, he still has the final table in his sights. Now what happens on the third day is the uh, pressure will t- is rising now. And um, a lot of people will sort of freeze or crack up. And well, all there is to do today is get the last nine or whatever that is. So that's the next plan. I just got to play well, you know. The dream is still alive. I met Andy the first day he ever walked into a poker club. He walked into Merrion Square looking badly in need of a wash. And Andy's big problem, and he'd probably tell you this himself, uh, is that um, he's, he's sometimes a little insecure and he needs to impress people. But uh, he'd impress people an awful lot more if he didn't blow up when he got a big chip stack, you know. But but he's fantastic, you know. Andy is very very close to the real deal as a poker player. I mean, it... tilt us when you lose it, yeah. And I would be known as one of the extreme proponents of that art, yeah. You know, I mean, despite having more money than anyone else in this country and uh, tournaments, I've also tilted uh, probably more than anyone else at sort of uh, crucial times. Um, so tilt is where you just uh, your mind disappears uh, somehow, and you make some stupid, insane mistake. Um, and uh, over the years, I figure that it's something to do with, you know, instead of trying to win the the war, uh, I'm so determined to win each battle, even when the battle is lost. You know, Andy's got a reputation as being a crack-up merchant. You know, and he's a way better player than that. And sometimes people never give people um, credit for getting into the situations that they blow up in. You know, nobody ever... You know, people say, oh, that Andy Black, he's an idiot. I mean, he blew a big chip lead. But, no, you know, if you think about it more deeply, I mean, he's, he's blown the chip lead so often that uh, people forget that he actually got the chip lead in the first place. And, and, he, and he didn't... Uh, you know, he's done it so many times, it's not an accident. I mean, it, it, it proves that he's, you know, he's a very aggressive and talented player. So uh, I'll be the first guy cheering, I promise you. I'd love to see him win this because I think... Andy wants the title more than he wants the money. And I mean, any guy that wants the title more than he wants the money, that's fine by me. I mean, uh, I understand. About an hour into play on the third day, a crowd has formed around Andy's table. With a pair of kings, all his chips are in. If he loses this hand, he's out of the Irish Open. Andy Black is all in with a pair of kings against three seven of hearts. The flop, ace three two. The kings are still ahead. Nine of hearts gives a flush draw, a pair of threes. The kings are still ahead. Oh, for fuck's sake. Jack of hearts. We lose Andy Black. 
That was horrible. Pretty disappointed, you know. So I, I, I'm in great shape then if I win that part. Where have you finished up? 56. But if I win that part, I have a real chance of winning it, you know. So it's crucial. That's poker. What's all this that you're doing now? Getting my pittance. I got four and a half grand, so I won a thousand euros. But I'm pretty sick, you know, because um, that was that was very unlucky. So, pair of kings. A pair of kings in a big blind, you know, unless the guy's aces and winning, you know. It turns out he's seven and three. It's a perfect coup, you know. And four and a half. Okay. Thank you. Twenty-four hours later, Andy is with his son and drops back into the Burlington. I was pretty down, you know. I mean, just to, to put in context, uh, you know, when I got my money in, I'll win 12 out of 13 times. So that's how unlucky it was. It's late in the tournament. If it happens early, you, you, the later you get unlucky in a tournament, the more painful it is. And even after, um, I don't know, almost over 20 years of playing, um, in some ways it doesn't, it doesn't get old, you know? The, Kind of misery of getting unlucky. I played in a, I played in a cash game and I wasn't quite focused. I mean, the last couple of years I've won a lot of money in the side games here, so I ended up losing about three grand or something like that. I'm done for the weekend now, so I'm I'm, I'm not going to play anymore. I, I don't feel like I have the heart for it, you know. I'm a little bit tired, you know, because it's been a long weekend. I've smoked too many cigarettes. I, I realise I want to get back and sort of. You had a fried breakfast this morning. I had a fried breakfast this morning. In fact, I've had fried breakfast the last three mornings, you know? Really? That? I thought you had porridge. No. Anyway, anyway, me and my son are on a bit of a health kick, you know? Diet and, and various porridge bits, of, bits and, and pieces. Porridge and seeds. And no, and porridge and water, not porridge and milk. So I kind of like, although I'm a bit deflated now, I mean, I, I have a sense of uh, certainly coming up to Monte Carlo, which is in three or four weeks' time. And the World Series, you know, I, I should be in good shape. But I have a lot of work to do, you know. Would you prefer to not go in there and see them? Because it could sting a bit to go if you went in and saw them playing there. But it does sting a bit, yeah, because I'm a poker player, you know, and I want to be at the final table, you know. In some ways, I train all year to play in the World Championship. That's the thing that I love, yeah. So I'll go there and I'll play 50 tournaments or 40 tournaments in the space of six weeks. And um, I have these dreams that... You know, I'd be the the first European player to kind of win the Player of the Year over there. No, no European has ever done that. I mean, there's two bits of unfinished uh, business that I, I'm quite prepared to spend the rest of my life doing. And one is win the Irish Open, and the other one is to go back and, and win the World Championship. I'm either going to win it before I die or die before I win it. I mean, it doesn't make any difference as long as you keep turning up. I mean, and if you still have that target there, I mean, it's something to live for. Like when I walk in the door at the Irish Open, I mean... I feel like I'm walking into the eccentrics club. I mean, I can feel the ghosts. I can feel Jimmy Langer touching me on the shoulder saying, do it this time, son. They're both fours. Yeah. Okay, now he gets his, his cyborg body. He gasgles dead. All right, so there's only one Meganob left. Wounded. And the Meganob, yeah, no, one of them is, uh, yeah, but the Meganob killed Gasgill. 
and I've never actually seen Gazgul die. This is the first time I've seen Gazgul die. Well, usually Gazgul would have about 10 Meganobs as his bodyguard. That's roughly so the percentages. When in the hand I went out in the Irish Open, yeah. Basically, you know, I mean, basically, the chance of me going out in the Irish Open in the hand that I was in was Gazgul against aggression. You know, if that makes any sense. I'm sure somewhere out there it makes a lot of sense. But it's basically like a pawn beating a queen, you know, in chess. No, it's like a pawn being against two rocks, a queen, and two castles. I like the way you're talking, so that's my boy. <laughs> and 50 pawns. Okay, you lost them there. You went too far. You lose your grip. And then you slip into the masterpiece. And maybe I had my... If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.